Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast in Phoenix, Arizona. Good morning. Well, that's great. You know, I love being in Phoenix. Um, I have in-laws in Phoenix. It's a great place to have your in-laws, and you have to visit them at Christmas and Easter. So we come down from Wisconsin. The only sad thing I have to admit is, in Wisconsin, there's no snow on the ground. I like it to be very snowy before I leave so I can come down to Phoenix and enjoy uh, the warm weather. That just shows a little of my sinful side there, that I, I want it to be really cold and miserable for them up in Wisconsin while I'm down here enjoying the heat of, of the Phoenix area. Um, but I do greet you from your brothers and sisters in Wisconsin, but more importantly, I greet you in the name of the one who set the stars in their place and who rules the, the whole universe and despite that was willing to stoop down and to become part of the creation that had completely messed itself up. I'm speaking of our, our Savior Jesus who came to rescue us as the undercover God you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. We're in the year 2012. But I bet you if you asked people, if you just went around today and said, why is it the year 2012? Instead of, why, why isn't the year 3015? Why the year 2012? Most people, my guess, is would not, would not know that it's based on the reality of the undercover God. We count our years. Our very society counts its years on the basis of the birth of Christ, his coming into this world. This is the year 2012 of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, for many in our world, he's still an undercover God. And many of those who follow him maybe are undercover. And that's perhaps why Jesus is still an undercover God. It's interesting. There are some reasons I think that it may be very tempting to stay an undercover follower of Jesus Christ in a world the way it is. I serve on a group that oversees work behind the bamboo curtain in East Asia and China. Just heard a report recently. Another one, it continually comes. It's, it's never front-page news, but, but we hear about it. People who are being in China, imprisoned, or sent to mental health wards. They call them the black prisons because it's sort of underground. They can just ship someone to a mental health ward to get treatment because they are causing trouble. They are revealing the name. They're uncovering the God who came for us whose name needs to be spread. Just this week, in the paper, USA Today, not front page again, small little article, hidden away, 35 people were killed in Nigeria. Why? Because they wanted to uncover the name of the God who has come for us, as one of us, to take our place, to die our death. 35 people in a church, Muslims, radical Muslims, attacked the church. Others were wounded and killed. Not even front page news. Maybe you didn't even hear about it. I wouldn't have known if I hadn't just stumbled on the paper. Maybe it's not very easy for people to be followers, though, of Christ and to uncover him in a world like that. And if you've ever felt that it's challenging, maybe not because you're going to be sent to prison or put in a mental health award, but just because someone's going to look at you like, what, do you got a problem? Why would you follow him? Why would you believe that? Or that it's just a struggle 
Because it seems a lot easier, maybe, just not to follow him at all and to be an undercover follower of Jesus. If you've ever felt that way or been tempted to that, you're not the first one. In fact, the book that we're going to turn our attention to today in the New Testament is the book of Hebrews. And it initially is written to people who were Christ followers in the first century of Jewish ancestry, but they were being tempted to say, you know what, there's just a little bit too much trouble following Jesus. It would be a lot easier to go back to our old way or to just keep him under, under wraps. And so the writer to the Hebrews is going to encourage them to let the unknown God and the radical steps that he's taken in order to save us be shared. Book only has 7,000 words. You could read it in a little under an hour, perhaps. But to digest all the doctrine and the information and the spiritual nourishment that's in this book, well, it could take you a lifetime. We're not going to take a lifetime today, I promise. But we are going to delve into the first part of the second chapter. If you take the first two chapters, they really introduce the theme that's going to go throughout this letter to the Hebrews. Theme is simple. Jesus is superior. That's the theme of the book. And there'll be many different topics and articles and things that touch on that. But in the end, Jesus is going to be compared to everything and every way that God could have gotten this plan done. But Jesus is superior and the plan that he carried out, the radical steps he took to save us, are going to be superior. Chapter 1 has to do with this notion that Jesus is God. In fact, that's the stress. Jesus is true God. He's the undercover God. And he brings it up in this way. He's going to show that in chapter 1, he is true God. In chapter 2, he's a human being. And he needs to be both. He desperately needs to be both. Both true God and a real human being who's going to be able to take our place. Now, it's interesting that as you trace chapter 1 you're going to see that it says that Jesus is going to be the one or is the one through whom God made the universe. So that's, that's an encouraging thing. Jesus is not just some superhero with superhero powers. He's not just an angel or some you know, created being of some kind. No, he is actually the true God. The God who rules the heavens, who sits on his throne in glory and will reign with justice. That's the point. At the end of it, it says, he will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What a picture. It's like uh, what you hope to do maybe this afternoon. It's putting your feet up on the couch, right? Sitting back and reclining because guess what? The work is all done. It's accomplished. And in the end, that's what the promise is in knowing that Jesus is God. Work is going to be accomplished. But I have to tell you, if that's where the book ended, at the end of chapter 1, I'd be a little disappointed. Well, more than that. Can I tell you this? If, if all we knew is that Jesus is God, all-powerful, all-knowing, superior, and that's where it ended, sitting in heaven, ready to make all of his enemies into a footstool for him, well my knees would start knocking, and I would hope yours would too. 
that may sound strange. It may sound strange that this idea that I'm saying that Jesus is God would make me a little worried. Do you think I'm going to get the gong from Pastor Jeff? The guy who's up on the front here shouldn't be saying that he's a little disappointed that Jesus is a God, but follow with me on this. I'd be a little disappointed if that's where it ended because if all Jesus was was this all-knowing, all-seeing, perfect, holy God who demanded perfection, by the way, and is going to crush all his enemies and will reign with justice, then I'd be worried. My knees would start knocking, and I hope yours would too because here's the bad news. You'd be an enemy of God, and I'd be an enemy of God, and I'd be facing his wrath, his justice, That's where chapter 1 and chapter 2 have to fit together. Jesus had to be the undercover God to accomplish what he came to do. But also, you can be glad to know he's a 100% real human being. If you look, that's the point of chapter 2. And I'll just at this point pick up two verses, and we're going to walk through each of the steps But just two verses just to highlight that notion. In verse 14, he says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He shared in their humanity. And then verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In chapter 1, Jesus was compared to angels. And the theme again, Jesus is superior. He was shown to be superior to any angel. He's not a created being. He is God. Chapter 2 now. Jesus is going to be compared to other human beings. But in the end, he is superior because he's a human being without sin. And he's a human being that came on a mission that he accomplished. Chapter, uh, the the lesson that's before us today that starts in verse 5 begins with a dilemma. Here's the dilemma that's, that's going on. Um, I'd like you to take a look at this fish tank. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of soothing. You like to look at a fish tank, at least I do. Um, I've had a few. What's interesting is when you're the keeper of that aquarium and something's wrong or you need to do something with that aquarium... You know what happens? When you stick your hand as the keeper of the aquarium into that aquarium, what happens? The fish flee, don't they? (laughs) They they run because even though you are not there to harm them, you are there because you want to right things that are wrong in that aquarium or help them in some way. The fish flee because the keeper can't do that. He's always a threat. He appears, even as you get close to the aquarium, as a threat to the fish. And you're not, but that's the way you appear. And that's the way it would be if God tried to step into the aquarium of our world. And that's the point of chapter 2. I guess, if you didn't want to scare the fish as the keeper of the aquarium, you'd have to become a fish. (laughs) And isn't that what Jesus did? To write what was wrong, he had to become one of us. Let's go to the dilemma and why he had to do that. If you look in verses 5 to 7, you start to see this come very clearly. He says, it is not to angels, picking up still the angel theme from chapter 1, it is not to angels that he subjected the, has subjected the world to come. There's a lot to unpack from that little statement. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. 
What does that mean? There's a world that's going to come. Jesus um, has ascended into heaven, but he's coming back, and he's going to write what's wrong with this world. And at that point, human beings are going to be involved in his plan. It's not angels that he's going to use in the end, but people, the world to come. Now, notice how he goes on, verse 6. But there is a place where someone has testified. Everyone knew what he was, the writer to the Hebrews was saying. If you were a good Jew, you knew where this verse came from. It came from the book of Psalms, the, the hymnal of the Old Testament. And they knew that, that David had written this psalm. But the writer just makes it very gentle, and he says, Someone has testified. This is true. You know this, guys. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. Have you ever felt kind of insignificant when you look at just how vast things are in this world? As if you're just a speck of dust in the whole uh, seashore of time. I remember going to the center of Australia. I served for a year uh, down under in Australia. And I went camping in the outback, in the deep outback. And I've never seen so many stars and the, just the vastness of the universe. And to be able to sit there under the stars, what you really get the sense of both the awesomeness of God, but you also get a sense of, what am I? Who am I in the midst of all of this? That's what, that, that's what David was really saying. What is man? Why that you're mindful of him? Why should you care about human beings, God? When there's, there's this universe, there's all that you are. And yet, you made him a little lower than the angels. Now, that could be very well misunderstood. God is not saying angels are up here, man is down here. Um, angels are different than man. That's true. Angels are spiritual beings, spirit beings. Men, human beings, are body and spirit, connected, physical, and spiritual, put together with the soul. Um, so we're different. Maybe a better translation or better understanding of what he's saying a little lower is lower for a little while. And a number of commentators have tried to translate it that way. Lower for a little while. Because God made angels and he made human beings. And when God created human beings, he made them in a, in a sense um, to reign over his creation. He made it very clear that that was his purpose. If you go back to the beginning of the first book of the Bible when God created things. He says, you weren't just some speck of dust. You weren't some accident, cosmic accident. But everything that he created had a plan. And its ultimate purpose was centered on human beings because he cared about them. He created it all for them. And at the end of chapter 1, God even says this. Chapter 1, verse 28, he said, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Isn't that amazing? That's what God's original plan was. But that isn't exactly the way it is right now. What you see today, here's something you can write in your sermon notes, what you see today is not what God intended. Now, I'm not telling you anything you probably can't figure out on your own, right? That's something that started at the Garden of Eden. What Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, were supposed to have has been lost. 
they were supposed to live under God's direction, but then to reign over all of God's creation for the sake of having a blessing for them. But that isn't the way it is. Man has lost dominion over nature. Paul wrote to Christ followers in ancient Rome about using it sort of in a personification creation, like crying out, when is this going to happen? God said man, human beings, were supposed to rule over creation, but it doesn't happen. It's in your sermon notes from chapter 8 of Romans where Paul actually says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Creation itself, waiting for God's plan finally to be fulfilled. It it was frustrated when Adam and Eve sinned, when they they took the, the fruit, forbidden fruit, when they believe the lie of the devil. Again, here's the fact. What you see today isn't what God intended. And you don't have to look very far to see the reality of that. You don't have to look beyond the borders of our nation. You don't have to look beyond the edge of your own city. You don't even have to look over your neighbor's fence to see that things aren't the way God intended. Just look in your own heart. Look at your own relationships. Go to your own workplace. See in your own life, how things are messed up when God wanted them to be filled with blessing and bliss. It's not what God planned. Human sin and rebellion has interrupted God's intentions for this world. But this is why we have a radical step from an undercover God, because Jesus is someone who you wouldn't expect, and he does something that you wouldn't expect. That's what we're going to see today. Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he did isn't what you'd expect. The writer to the Hebrews is going to take us through four points which will help us understand why that's true. Jesus isn't who you'd expect. He does things that you wouldn't expect. It begins with this. He came to regain our lost destiny. And we'll go back to those verses 8 and 9. He came to regain our lost destiny. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, it's continuing on that why should you even worry about man? And yet, you put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, talking about human beings, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet. Yet, at the present, we do not see everything subjected to him. We don't see everything subjected to human beings. Um, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 8 reminds us of God's intention and man's failure. William um, Barclay comments on this situation this way. Man was meant to have dominion over everything, but he has not. He is a creature who is frustrated by his circumstances, defeated by his temptations, encircled by his own weaknesses. He who should be free is bound, and he who should be a king is a slave. 
C.K. Chesterton put it this way, whatever is or is not true about men, this one thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be. And am I telling you anything that your own life experience doesn't tell you? One little tiny germ can take you down. And, and sometimes that's physically, but sometimes one little temptation can take you down spiritually. We, we can't control the forces of nature, let alone the forces of our ho- own human heart sometimes. Can you stop yourself from growing older, from avoiding death? Obviously, everything is not subjected to us. But then, there's a little encouragement, there's hope, but we see Jesus, this man, Jesus, compared to the rest of human beings. We see Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to this dilemma because he's going to set the purpose straight again. He came to regain what we had lost. And in all, in doing that, He relates to our difficulties. That's the second point I'd like you to focus on. Then you can put that in your sermon notes, I suppose. He came to relate to our difficulties. Listen to verses 10 to 13. In bringing many sons, and you can add daughters, to glory, it was fitting that God, from whom and through whom everything exists. Remember, Jesus is God, and yet it's fitting that he should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering both the one who makes men holy and those who are holy are of the same family now. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and had sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. As if these are the words of Jesus in prophecy. Here I am and the children God has given me. The writer is taking a lot of quotes from the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, uh, the Bible that the Jewish people would have been most familiar with, and he's saying all of those are fulfilled in Jesus. Amazing. Jesus was truly the Messiah, the, the coming Savior, but he's God, and yet he also was always going to be one with those people. He was going to be a human being. So he can say, I'm with my children. I'm with my brothers. And here's the amazing radical thing of all that. God is holy. Jesus is holy, sinless. And Adam and Eve were sinless, but you and I aren't. Ever since the first sin, we've had that problem of not being in the family of God, not being able to be connected to him. But that's why Jesus had to enter the aquarium, isn't it? It's an amazing concept that he can understand our difficulties because he's gone through them. He had real temptations, he had real struggles, and he overcame all of them for our sake many of the themes of Hebrews keep coming back up. If you keep tracing this one, by chapter 5, it'll say this just amazing statement. Although he, talking about Jesus, was a son, even though Jesus was the son of God, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So even though he was God, he gained something by going through the experience of living here and of going through what you and I go through. He's experienced our difficulty. He's not some distant, far-off God, remember. He's a personal God who, who, who actually is truly human and God at the same time in a way that ought to amaze us. Although he was the son, 
He learned obedience through what he suffered. Imagine, again, if you only knew that Jesus Christ was this holy, perfect God in heaven who demanded perfection, and that's all you knew about him. That would be a sad story to tell. But Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's the good news. He not only came to relate to our difficulties, though, he came to release us from the greatest difficulty, the bondage to death itself. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they were told that if you take this, you will surely die. And sin brings death. And and all the things, the consequences that are in our life because of that. The writer to the Hebrews states, though, since the children, this is verse 14 and 15, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, see, Jesus' birth leads to his death because that was part of the plan to accomplish the mission. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Do you imagine that you're not going to die? I mean, you and I are uh, not only entangled in sin in some way, but we know where it leads. I mean, it doesn't take much to figure out that every human being is eventually going to face death. As a society, we do a great job of trying to cover up death and to make it look bad. We don't want the smell of death in anything. We can perfume it. We can flower it up. We can dress it up. But in the end, every funeral has a corpse. Death is a reality all around us. And somehow, there has to be a release from it. Can you shut your eyes to it? Maybe you can say, and some can, oh, I don't fear death. With a lot of bravado. But in the end... You can't deny it. Maybe you can, you can hide yourself from the realities of, of sin in your life and, and death consequences and a holy God. Maybe you, maybe you can drink yourself to oblivion that you don't even acknowledge sin's consequence in your life or, or shoot, shoot up to that point that you're numb to it all. But that's a form of slavery itself. You, you can cover it up. You can hide it. But in the reality of this existence, death is part of every day. But something happened. Verse 14 says, by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That threat, that curse, the devil. The word destroy um, means not just to annihilate, but to render inoperative. To make it so it doesn't work. It doesn't mean you aren't going to face death. Even Jesus himself faced death, right? But that's not the end of his story. He overcame it with the, the end, empty tomb. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will live. Even though he dies, you're still going to face physical death, but it doesn't have the power over you anymore. It's inoperative. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians about what that meant for them in 1 Corinthians 15, which you have in your sermon notes, put it this way, applying this. He said, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What a beautiful expression. Fallen asleep. That's not a euphemism. That's not just a nice way of saying something that's really terrible. Fallen asleep. No, they're dead. No, 
not if they're a believer in Christ, if they are a follower of Jesus Christ, if they've been connected to him in the waters of baptism, they have life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. They're falling asleep. They're going to wake up to a new world, and a new age in which God is going to raise up man to be with him in a special way. Not angels. And that's the point of this theme that's been thrown through here. The first fruits, he says. You know what that means? That's kind of a hard expression. We don't use that. Most of us aren't farmers. But first fruits are the first crops you bring in. So the first fruits you bring in are your first fruits. Oh, well, that makes sense, huh? But thanks for getting that one. The first fruits. But what is the promise of that? If you bring that first fruits in, there's going to be second fruits. There's going to be more. So Jesus is the first fruits. The fact that Jesus overcame death ought to give you hope, confidence. Others are going to follow. He promised. And he did it himself. You got the first fruit in the barn, the next is going to follow. You can be confident you're going to have a good harvest. We're the harvest. So the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he makes the point why you can believe that. Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a man, death came into this world through Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. That's Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What does this mean? The sting, the pain, the reality of death is overcome because we have one who is our champion. That's a concept I don't think we get. The idea of a champion, someone who who takes your place and fights the battle in your stead. Example from the Bible of this, though. Goliath, name familiar? David and Goliath. Goliath was a great and mighty warrior, nine foot tall, came out to the battle line with the Jewish people on one side and the Philistine army that Goliath was part of on the other. And every day he would say to the Jews, send one of your men out to fight me. Mano e mano. Whoever wins this battle between the two of us, then the whole country wins. So if Goliath defeats one of the Israelites, then the Philistines win the battle and take the, or take the Israelites captive. It's not a concept we have today, but that's exactly what was going on, challenging them every day. Finally, while the Israelites were shivering in their boots, a little shepherd boy came named David, who would one day become King David, and with a slingshot, took Goliath out, right? in the power and strength of God, in the confidence that came from knowing that a mighty God was with him. He was a champion. Um, and so that one conquered for all. And then the Israelites overcame the Philistines as a result. Jesus is that champion. He has overcome death. He's defeated the devil for his nation. And we get the spoils of that. A modern-day example is probably what's going to happen um, this next summer in London, 2012, right? The Olympics. When some of our athletes go, they will represent us, won't they? So that when Michael Phelps wins in the pool, the announcer is going to shout out, the Americans have won the gold medal. Not really. Michael Phelps won it, right? But he's going to represent us, and we'll take credit for it, and we'll feel good about it. Jesus has gotten the gold for us, but in even a greater way. Because he actually took our place and he gives us 
his death in our place so that we don't have to fear death anymore. If you look at those verses, uh, 14 and 15, you just see that your worst enemy has been taken away. And it doesn't hold a power over you anymore. He's released you from that ultimate fear that plagues us, death. But you know what? Jesus isn't just worried about what's going to happen on judgment day to you. He's worried about your everyday life. And that's why there's such comfort in the last section of this chapter, verses 15 to 18, starting in verse 16, sorry, because he comes to restore us from daily defeat, from the challenges of everyday living that you and I are going to face in the year 2012 of our Lord. Look at these verses, 16 to 18. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Again, Jesus is not concerned about angels. Man is better off than angels because angels, although they're fearsome and awesome, and every time they show up in the Bible, people have to be told when they're believers, don't be afraid. You know, I'm not here to zap you. Angels are scary. But God ultimately isn't worried about angels. He's worried more about you. For it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, there's a lot of thick stuff in that. Stuff that if you were a Jewish believer who worshipped in that Old Testament period, and if you had to follow all the customs and uh, commands um, on the way that you had to sacrifice and do everything that was in the Old Testament, you could understand this high priest concept and atonement. High priest made sacrifices, took animals, slaughtered them, spread their blood out instead of taking the worshiper's blood. Church was a pretty gory mess in, in the Old Testament. In fact, you didn't gather inside the temple. You had to stay on the outside because God was holy and you weren't. So only the high priest went inside the, the church, the temple. And on the day of atonement, he would make a sacrifice of an animal and splatter blood on the sacred box called the Ark of the Covenant where God had put his promises and his Ten Commandments inside that box. And he would sprinkle blood, making atonement, all symbolizing something that was eventually going to come and blood that would eventually be shed by Jesus Christ himself. So you have a high priest who's better because he's one who has done one sacrifice forever. Not every day do you have to go to the temple. You don't come here every day to see sacrifices, blood splattered, no, You come because you've been gathered at an empty cross because you know here's where forgiveness is found. It's done. You have a high priest who's, who's made like you, but he accomplished something. And he came to help you then accomplish the everyday things. That comfort is found in the word atonement. At peace, literally. At peace with God again. God's demands taken away. Fulfilled in Christ because the mission is accomplished. And he says he'll help you. It's literally the cry of a child. The word has the sense that he's going to come when you're crying, like a mom would come running when they hear the child crying. That's how Jesus is for you. Aren't you glad 
that you know Jesus not just as some perfect God, but as a real human being? The writer to Hebrews, again, will pick up this theme, and in chapter 4, he'll talk more about why that's a comfort. You have it in your sermon notes. He said, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. There's the difference. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time, our time of need. You might say, well, Jesus was tempted, but just a second. He went through a lot of things, but wasn't he like a first century Palestinian guy? I mean, he was a single guy. Maybe I'm a woman. Maybe I'm married. He doesn't know the temptations of being single or the temptations of being married. Does he really understand what it's like? Trust me, he does, because in the end, all temptation and sin is similar. It involves the question of doubting God, denying God, or just defying God. And Jesus had to face all of those temptations, and he overcame them. And that's why you can go to him and know that he understands and that he can actually help. Do you recall, um, in May of 2003, after the initial uh, armies of Saddam Hussein were destroyed, President Bush went to the United States, uh, Abraham Lincoln, a carrier, and with this banner behind him, he gave a famous speech. That banner said, Mission Accomplished. And I'll tell you right now, a lot of people were upset about that because after that point, we lost more casualties and had more problems in Iraq than before that. This was a different kind of war we were suddenly fighting against insurgents uh, with, with different methods. And I'm not here to talk about politics, trust me. But George Bush himself would later say the banner was sort of a mistake. Um, He said, clearly, putting mission accomplished on the aircraft carrier was a mistake. I mean, politicians or uh, political pundits have made a mockery of this ever since. In fact, just recently I saw this one just as we're finally getting out of Iraq, attrition accomplished. Do you think we should say mission accomplished? However unlikely it appears that Jesus has accomplished his mission. Can you say that? Because you look out, and guess what? You see Satan still seeming to have the day, don't you? Um, You still see all kinds of problems as he continues to mount an insurgency. You see temptations that you face, and sometimes you fall flat on your face. Don't you see loved ones still dying? Are, are you really able to say mission accomplished with Jesus? Trust me, my friends, stay with the story. Stay with the story, not just from Bethlehem and to the empty tomb at Golgotha uh, or after Golgotha, but stay with him as he walks into the skies and stay with him as he comes back because the story is a story of a mission accomplished because it centers in what will ultimately happen as he lives those 33 years for us and he dies our death. Yes, we'll still face temptations. Yes, we'll still have loved ones lost. But even as we might face ridicule, we have to remind ourselves that the mission is accomplished when I confess Jesus. Not What God does with that is his. And the mission is accomplished, actually, when someone dies in faith in Jesus Christ and they close their eyes and they fall asleep. Mission accomplished. That's what God wanted. 
And that even when I face temptation, God, just like through Jesus, wants me to learn through that suffering, obedience, that the mission can be accomplished, even as I have to face that, but I draw strength from the only one who can give it to me. For that's probably the key lesson from today, is that we are called on to trust Christ to help us survive the suffering that's part of our existence as human beings and to overcome the temptations. Because God isn't just some far-off God. He's the God who's part of our life and understands what we're going through and wants to help us in this year of our Lord, 2012. To that, I can only ask you to say, Amen. You can say it. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we rejoice to know that you are indeed the one who we can go to. You have survived the suffering and the temptations and the difficulties of this life in our place. We rejoice to know you as God, but also to confess you as a human being who is both able to understand and accomplish what we couldn't. Strengthen us in this coming year with your grace. Uh, Send your spirit through the messages we hear and the gifts that you give us in so many ways to be strengthened in this knowledge and to live for you each and every day, uh, not undercover, but as your disciples who everyone can see. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.